Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson, and I'm here today uh, in Beirut, Lebanon, uh, with Dr. Ellen Fleischman and Christine Linder to discuss the question of women and the American Protestant mission in Syria, um, spanning the now almost a century and a half of their presence here um, in the Levant. So uh, Dr. Fleischman is a professor of history and the humanities chair at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. And Dr. Linder uh, is a professor at Philadelphia University and also was the inaugural director of the Preserving Protestant Heritage Project um, held here where we are broadcasting from today at the uh, Near Eastern School of Theology. So welcome, I'd like to welcome you both to the podcast and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, we're delighted to be here. Great, well it's a, it's a real pleasure and I think that um, this conversation is timely for a variety of reasons. The first being that obviously we're lucky to have both of you in Beirut um, for a short period of time. And also because uh, as we keep hearing this year is the 150th anniversary of the American University of Beirut, um, which was of course earlier in its history, the Syrian Protestant College. Um, so we're sort of at this, uh, this moment where lots of people in Lebanon and elsewhere are taking a moment to look back on the history of the Protestant mission. Um, and sort of rethink, you know, what its history was and what its legacies have been. So I'm um, very excited to talk to you both today. Uh, I thought we could start out perhaps just by um, introducing the cast of characters. You know, we want to focus particularly on women um, and the Protestant mission. And this, uh, this sort of comes to my mind that we're actually talking about various different groups of women, right? Um, there are the women who come with the American missionaries to the Levant starting, uh, you know, in the 1820s. Right? And then there are also the, the women who are living here um, who come into contact in various ways with uh, American missionaries, both male and female. So maybe you could just start out by, by um, saying a little bit about you know, who the women were who came, what they came to do, where they came from, and, and what they found when they got here. Uh, this is uh, Ellen Fleischman. The first women who came were wives of missionaries. They came in 1823, actually. And they ended up working with women here. It was considered natural. They worked in um, unacknowledged as missionaries, just as wives of missionaries, who, as one woman remarked in, a, in an article about 100 years later, wives of missionaries do something a lot more than people imagine, even though they aren't missionaries technically. But these women started the first uh, school for girls, something that we might even call a homeschool in our terms, in their homes um, as early as the 1920s. And actually, Christine has done a lot of work on these, so I'm going to turn this over to her. Sure. Um, thank you, Ellen, for that introduction there. Um, yeah, I think there is a diversity of the ways in which the missionary women um, saw their position. Some of them were as wives, some of them were single teachers. Um, and the roles, particularly of missionary wives, was kind of complex, whether they were just here to support their husbands and in their you know, missionary job and translating the Bible or preaching. And some women did this independent work teaching, but also medical services. Um, and that leads kind of this trajectory of women serving as um, medicine providers and also drawing upon the traditional role. So it's so interesting because already we see that this is really, um, you know, that the experience of coming as an American to the Levant in the 19th century was really gendered, right? I mean, in that the wives weren't considered, you know, missionaries in a formal sense, and yet they took on all of these duties, medicine, um, education that would become associated with the missionary project. 
and then also, of course, that the conditions here were 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 hard um, and perhaps also engendered ways. I mean, the question of you know death and childbirth, the difficulty of raising children, um, of leaving a family. That these are kind of gendered experiences. Absolutely, and in fact, some of the missionary wives became sort of um, doctoras or hakimas because they had to basically learn medical skills in order to help preserve their families and themselves. And they ended up treating sometimes uh, people unofficially. So it was, uh, in some ways, it was, well, in many ways, it was extremely difficult work and difficult for them. There were further problems, or not problems, but there were further gendered issues for women regarding their employment status, too. The single women missionaries received less than the male missionaries. And uh, this went on for quite some time, and the justification was that uh, the single women had to live with families for quite a long period of time. That and they so, came and lived with Syrian families? No, they, no. <laughs> they lived with missionary families. Right. And they lived in, you know, sort of a kind of extended family situations, which sometimes caused tension, but that was a justification for paying them less because they didn't have to set up a household. Or, and or, they lived in schools. And so they were, you know, subsidized, so to speak, by the mission. And the, the goal of being a missionary wife was to become the, um, the homemaker. The, and so there was this kind of hierarchy of amongst the women of who was going to be the housekeeper. And you see the families themselves, so what I call them mosaic households, where you see this kind of conglomeration of missionaries living together, where it would be a newly arrived missionary couple, an established missionary wife would be the housekeeper with her children, um, a random missionary man who would be traveling around, um, and possibly some uh, Syrian Protestant converts, and obviously a bunch of servants. And so that would be, say, the structure in Beirut during the winter time. And then when they went up to the mountains during the um, summer, that would obviously be broken up. And so what you have is this really flexible uh, form of family structure, which must have seemed totally bizarre to the local community of what's going on or who's married to who and why are all these people living together? I mean, it, in one way it reproduces or it, re it parallels the extended families going on um, in the region, but at the same time, the fact that they are broken up so quickly and so easily um, must have been, in my mind, quite... Bizarre. Surprising. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to mention is what I see as a really interesting gendered element is that when missionary men die, there's a big tension between the missionary widows and the board often of can they stay and continue their work in the region's teaching. And this is the American Board of Commissioners of Foreign Missions based in New York City, which funded and oversaw uh, the American early American mission right until, until eighteen seventy. Although it also continued the same kind of policy continued after eighteen seventy when the um, Presbyterian Foreign Board of Missions took over Presbyterian Church in the USA because they're different denominations or divisions within right. the Presbyterians. Right. I mean, I think you know uh, the tension that you're pointing out is really interesting between, on one hand, you know things um, that are very familiar in an American context, like the sort of um, the sort of the, the household wage, right? The, the idea that the man makes more because he has to set up a, a household um, are brought over, right? And then at the same time, Christine, what you're pointing out is that um, these family structures were actually perhaps 
uh, bizarre, both in the sort of Levantine context or the Beirutian context, and perhaps also not what people had experienced um, back in the States. So that there's really something that is neither purely American nor purely Syrian getting set up um, among the Protestant community here. Yeah, and I think it's very important to realize this exchange both ways of both the groups, um, the Protestants in the group being influenced by the situation, as well as the um, Protestant, the Syrian Protestants who emerge, both of them being this hybrid culture. And I think particularly as, well, even if they were here for a year or two, the missionary couple, I think the experience really did shape them. And one of the things that's really interesting that I'm trying to look at is when missionary couples or missionary wives um, return to the United States, what's going on there? How did they, how did that affect their lives back home? It's a little bit of a struggle to, to find archives for that or to, to trace their legacies because they're often hidden, even in the United States. But it's, um, it's an interesting narrative to see how much they are affected. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that that's something um, we want to continue to talk about throughout the podcast is the sort of transnational lives of many of these actors, um, both American and Syrian, uh, especially in later decades. Um, that, you know, these are, these are encounters which are not just limited to Beirut or the Lebanese mountain. Um, and that, in fact, they sort of have ramifications in a much broader uh, a much broader space. One thing that I've been picking up uh, recently in the archives is the influence of the missionary wives' families in funding their work and funding their livelihoods in the region. And so it kind of creates this parallel um, system of income that doesn't necessarily, well, doesn't restrict them to only the income given by their husbands. And so you have this sort of navigation of, you know, who, because often what you have are missionary, particularly during the early years, missionary women who might be a more higher class level marrying, quote unquote, down um, because of this evangelical conviction, which is a really interesting thing. So their families would be providing them extra funding to do things that the board would not support, like buying dresses, like buying different types of clothing, um, buying books. And so it does create this tension. It's often not talked about, um, but it's uh, an interesting feature. And this also allows their families to come visit, which is really not talked about by the board. These kind of alternative, not necessarily missionaries, but they're living with the missionaries and how they kind of cause trouble. And, uh, you know, they go back and write their own things. They write it, go against the board. So it's this kind of really big, you get to see the beginning of the alternative definitions of America beyond the scope of what the American missionaries wanted to define it as. Yeah, yeah, I, I so this is a, a strange, you know, diversion from the funds, but it's, a, it's related to the topic of funding. The missionaries, I think this issue of women and funding is really actually very interesting because what you see over time is not only do the women have access to family funds, but you also see women, I mean, one example being Dr. Mary Eddy, who practiced medicine in Lebanon in the 1890s and early 20th century, raising money separately for her project and being funded by some um, denomination back in the U.S. And then later on in the 1930s, when Arab women were starting to set up their own practices, Arab women who were educated in the junior college or the missionary secondary schools, some of whom went to the States, got medical training, and one in particular, um, Sania Haboub, actually raised funding in the U.S. to help set up her clinic here in Beirut, and she aroused, I don't know if ire is the proper word, but certainly irritation of the uh, male missionary board back home, as well as her um, 
supervisors back in the United States. The missionaries had funded her scholarship, her medical training in the U.S., and they were quite irritated that she was sending up, setting up an independent clinic with her own funding when she came back in the early 1930s. This is really fascinating because I think that it, it further makes the point that the the Protestant community here was not homogenous, and that you know certain individuals had uh, you know had abilities to fund things and to sort of bring over visitors that were outside of the purview of the American board, um, right? Which I think is a really fascinating reflection and, and encourages us to look maybe beyond just the board's desires as the subject of the sort of way of tracing the history of the you know the the mission and the encounter that it had. Um, I want to maybe turn to this question of the the Arab or Syrian women who met, encountered, were educated by, uh, were employed by um, the American missionaries. And sort of, uh, it strikes me that the missionaries were really interested in women almost from the beginning. I mean, one of the first things they do is to set up a school for girls. Um, you know, there's a lot of writing in missionary memoirs about the sort of situation of women in this part of the world. And so I'm curious, you know, um, from both of your research, what you what you make of the way that Syrian women, uh, or the ways, perhaps, that Syrian women encountered um, the American missionaries, both male and female. This is at the heart, I think, of um, both of our research. And it's a very difficult one to answer in many respects, because there are not a lot of sources with direct voices of the women. Um, there are some literary ones, and some people have really mined those. Uh, Fruma Zaks, for example, has worked a lot with these sources, and Deanna Womack has worked with published sources. Mm -hmm. But there aren't a lot, there's not journals and diaries and memoirs, to my knowledge. There are a few documents out there, particularly for the early period. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a whole methodological issue here where you have to uh, basically, I mean, perhaps I think it's possibly a fair criticism that we over-rely on the missionary documents and we have to, you know, do the usual reading between the lines as well as uh, look anywhere and everywhere for sources that we can find. Um, I think it was a, a extremely mixed response. I have done a, a fair amount of interviewing, not a lot of interviewing with some women who were in the mission schools. Most of them were in a later period from my research in the 40s, 1940s, for example, when it was quite different. So it's difficult to capture the 1920s and 30s. But in the case of, I mean, I'll give an example of someone whose own work and who I am studying now is uh, a young woman named Nejla Abu Azadine, who was the first Arab woman PhD who attended missionary schools and then went on to the U.S. and studied at Vassar for two years to finish her B.A. in history, and then who went to the University of Chicago and got graduate degrees, an M.A. and also a Ph.D. at the um, School for Oriental Languages and Literatures, as it was called then in Chicago. She got her Ph.D. in 1935. And her experience at mission schools... Um, Again, I don't really have her voice of that, but to move into her American educational experience, she apparently had very close relationship that she maintained throughout her lifetime with Vassar, and part of what really uh, contributed to that warm relationship was her discovery of 
having, as she put it herself, quoting Virginia Woolf, of course, having a room of one's own and studying as a woman and valuing female um, academia. And she writes about this in letters. So, I mean, I'm just describing here how trying to get at these women's experience sometimes takes you beyond the bounds of time of your project, but also takes you into a range of whatever sources you can find, quite frankly. And in my case, I ended up looking at academic transcripts and such to try to get at her experience. I think one of the things, excuse me, for me that's really jarring is that we're talking about a group that became literate for the most part, and we're the most, argumentatively, some of the most literate women in the country. And yet, and also part of their both academic training and their theoretical convictions, if they joined the Protestant church, was to be conscious of their self-memory, their self-history of this conversion process, and to be able to convey that. That's part of becoming the Protestant, in the, or at least in the 19th century. So it's very strange that we don't have these you know, memoirs or these written accounts of how they became Protestant, of how they used their um, their services to help others. It's very jarring. Julia Hauser has, talks a little bit about one, and that's because um, Melita Karabit, she was required as part of working with the deaconesses to write down and to use writing um, to reflect upon uh, their state. And the, this was part of the deaconesses school. But for the other missionaries, you don't see that so much. And it's very, it's very surreal. If, if we were talking about an illiterate group, a group that didn't emphasize schooling, it would make more sense. Right. But we're talking about a group where schooling was so essential. And literacy, and as you say, sort of being aware of one's own, you know, for those who converted, one's own conversion process. But don't you think that's an issue of gender as well? Because so many of these women, even though they were highly literate and highly capable, and even taught many of them before they taught, I'm talking about the Arab Protestant women. Right. Uh, and even, I mean, maybe I'll talk a little later about how the missionaries, in fact, affected and influenced non-Protestant women. But in this case, with the Protestant women, this is a gendered issue as well, because by and large, they ended up um, fulfilling one part of the missionaries' goals, which was becoming you know, proper Christian wives and mothers, which was you know, a lot of work. I mean, that was a job. And we're back to the uh, sort of double burden issue mm-hmm. of the 19th century. Yeah, and I think there's also this level of some of the articles that I've read or some of the things that I have found, the few letters that were published, talk about women saying you know, this, this humility that I don't want to discuss, you know, I'm not worthy enough to discuss my, my story, you should ask somebody else, but because you've asked me, I'll tell you. Um, knowing that they are kind of formidable, like headmistress, you know, it's sort of jarring to that. But I think that this is something that affects us even until today. Yeah. Um, It's fascinating, though, because we do see many of the American missionary women writing memoirs, um, you know, of their time in Syria, uh, or or perhaps not. Um, Is it also rare to find... Well, the most famous is Sarah Smith. But again, she was very much of a different character. She saw herself as a leader. She saw herself as being coming from an aristocratic background, and I think that aristocratic background definitely led into this. So she saw herself as um, the role model, and she had the back of her brother-in-law, who who then, when she died, collected her her letters and published them, the ones that didn't get shipwrecked. So I think it's class 
in many ways more than gender there and it's and she is an exception um because you have people like eliza everett who is kind of the you know inheritor of sarah smith's school and, and and things and we don't really we have nothing really that much by her yes i mean this is actually interesting because the missionary women didn't actually write or leave many memoirs at all in fact um one of the best sources we have are their letters. And Dr. Mary Eddy, for example, left quite a few letters. And they're, they're mostly letters to the uh, mission itself, but they're quite, um, they're quite full mm-hmm. and informative. And then we also have the letters of uh, Frances Irwin to her family that the mission preserved, which are amazingly rich. Welcome back to an episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Um, I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm here with Dr. Ellen Fleischman and Christine Linder, um, broadcasting from Beirut, Lebanon. About um, We're discussing the question of uh, women and gender and um, the American Missionary Project in Lebanon, which, uh, as we've touched on earlier in the podcast, lasted, at this point, over 150 years. Um, so one of the things I was wondering, you know, we've talked a little bit about the, the questions of sources, difficulties locating women, um, and the sort of gendered nature of the experience for both American women who came to the Levant and also um, women among the communities who were uh, who encountered the missionaries, shall we say. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask, given that education, and particularly the education of girls and women, was um, quite a serious part of what the missionaries were up to uh, in this part of the world. I wondered if you could um, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, maybe, Christine, you could discuss the earlier period, the sort of 19th century period, and Ellen, you could discuss the the, 20, the early 20th century. What, what did it mean to get a missionary education as a woman, um, and what kinds of things were taught, and how did, how did it go down? How did they experience that process? Sure, in the early period, I kind of consider it to be educational anarchy, but that parallels what's going on in the United States itself, where you have this diversity of educational or pedagogy, where you'd have people being taught in their house, you'd have people, particularly women, not being able to go to higher education, so their cap would be you know, private um, tutoring at seminaries. And that gradually is being introduced in the region, where you'd have many of the schools would take place in people's houses, as Ellen said earlier. The homeschool, um, home right, school. which is a really fascinating concept in right, a way. Right, right. And so... It be gradually became institutionalized, where you'd have the building of the girls' school in 1835, which was became the kind of central school. Eventually, became the American School for Girls, which um, is in Beirut. Yes, it was. It was torn down in 1960, unfortunately, because it suffered from the eight, uh, 1956 earthquake. But it was this kind of big building right outside downtown. Um, it was first Burj Bird, and then it got transformed um, into this very much of a landmark. Um, 
But you, this is gradual institutionalization, which didn't necessarily have to have happened. And I think it's important to see the different elements of the ways in which uh, women, the diverse ways in which women engage with the missionaries through educational activities as being a servant and learning literacy, of being uh, an adopted daughter, quote unquote, and being trained um, in different ways of being a good housewife, but also learning to do kind of high maths as well. And seeing how that develops into a boarding school where the students were learning, you know, scientific experiments, uh, as well as, you know, writing and Arabic and geography and history. So you see this development going on until you have this formal female seminary under Eliza Everett, which one of the most understudied person, I think, who's doing, you know, really amazing work in uh, astronomy, and they're doing these chemistry experiments, and they're doing all these really amazing things that would parallel what's going on in the United States. And also potentially what's going on in boys' schools. I mean, maybe, um, Ellen, also you could speak a little bit about, you know, is there a difference between how boys and girls are being educated? And if so, you know, um, what does it consist of? Well, I think Christine touched on that. The girls learned um, domestic science, I guess. They didn't call it that in those days. But they learned sewing skills. They learned some homekeeping skills. But I actually, I was quite struck in starting when the girls' school had a building and became more institutionalized, which was early on, how much they actually studied academic subjects, which Christine mentioned, like natural philosophy. Um, when they could afford it, when they had the resources, they would teach foreign languages. And they did teach mathematics. They, uh, one very important subject, which all the students, boys and girls, learned was to read the Bible and to read, um, I think, biblical exegesis, wouldn't you say, Christine? I mean, they read commentaries, they learned um, psalms and such, so they got religious instruction and read the Bible. Um, right, but what you're describing, it sounds to me, is um, something that goes far beyond simply kind of a, a religious education that was designed uh, to encourage conversion. Um, and so maybe you could talk a little bit uh, about, you know, what what was the missionary project uh, as they were educating both boys and girls, and, and how did it change over time? I mean, you know, starting in the early 19th century and then moving up into the first decades of the 20th century. Well, I mean, it's interesting, you know, there's so much to, that can be said about this. One thing that changed, I don't know if this is actually such a change, was the whole issue of satisfying a clientele and demand. Uh, increasingly, there was demand for schooling and schooling for girls. And as this increased, the missionaries um, began to try to fulfill it. On top of this, where there was very intense competition for this clientele with other missions. And increasingly, once the uh, Ottoman school system began to provide female education, that entered the uh, whole scene as well. So that the missionaries began to realize that they couldn't necessarily just stress a religious education, which, as you pointed out, they actually didn't, per se. Yes, they did have religious education. They stressed domesticity. But they did always have academic subjects. And they increasingly offered what they perceived of as the demand, foreign languages being one of them. And there was a whole issue around whether or not to teach in English or not, and, to, and or to even teach English. And... Um, this became quite a controversy in the mid-19th century. As we move to the 20th century, of course, things start changing with 
similar kinds of pressures. These kinds of pressures of competition and demand only intensified over time at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. And then one of the topics which I go into, which is very interesting to me, is the whole vocational aspect. And by vocation, I mean more professional. Right, women Trade started. School. Yes, mm-hmm. women started seeking credentials. This was particularly pronounced after World War I, when women um, were basically trying to get an education that could help them actually help support their families as single daughters initially, but... Um, eventually in professions such as teaching and medicine and ultimately um, in other kinds of professions. I can talk about domestic science. and Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fascinating because it, it returns us to one of the points that we, um, that we started out with, which is that this is, you know, I think oftentimes the missionary encounter used to be described as a kind of top-down um, imperial imposition of uh, a certain worldview, right? Whereas what I hear you both describing is actually um, a much more complex process in which local demand and the kinds of ways in which people wanted to be educated and wanted to be credentialed um, pushed missionaries into offering certain things, uh, adding things to the curriculum or taking things away. Yeah, and there was, it was, I mean, nobody's really talked about this so much, but I've been thinking, you know, there was a kind of, you know, almost market mentality amongst families and um, probably not the girls themselves. But many women actually attended missionary schools, Protestant American missionary schools, and they also attended other schools. Right. Nadia Sabeti has done some work that really highlights this. And this was particularly pronounced maybe in the 20th century, beginning in the early 20th century, where some girls would go to the American School for Girls for a time, and then they would go to Ahliya, for example. Right. And I should mention for our listeners that we'll put up a full bi- uh, bibliography of all of the um, many scholars in this very lively field that we've mentioned today as well. One of the things that I try to focus on in my research is to contextualize the development of the schools. Um, and I look mostly at the early 19th century. Um, so to contextualize it within the way in which education um, for women was being done in the region and how the missionaries um, fit into that. And so a lot of the, you see the early educational um, opportunities that they provided actually resonated with what was going on in the region, the demands placed upon um, women. So being trained as a servant, well, that's actually what people were doing anyway. And so the missionaries, whether they were conscious or not of that, I think is debatable, but this is what they were doing. And it brings up to mind that they did not have to succeed they could have been rejected completely by the local community. And so I think that there is this give and take in just establishing the mission and establishing the schools to begin with. Often the American missionaries are, um, are regarded as starting the first school for girls in the Ottoman Empire, which is on that plaque um, in downtown Beirut. And just as a side note, that, that plaque was actually a pillar that was to commemorate the death of Rahil Atta Abustani. Um, in 1894, and uh, that's never mentioned in the records that this was a, a almost a, a commemoration pillar for her death. So that's uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with Butrus al Bustani, who is a major, um, you know, sort of Arab intellectual of the mid 19th century. Can you tell us a little about Rahel Atta? To whom sure, I'm- Rahel is one of my favorite women in history. Um, she was the quote unquote adopted daughter of um, Sarah Smith, the missionary I mentioned before, um, and she became this very uh, leader of the Protestant um, Arab women community. 
Uh, she taught, she was fluent in English and in Arabic. She taught at the schools and she eventually, um, Boutros persuaded her to marry him and they had a very loving and wonderful family. Um, many of her, most of her children became leaders of the Nahta, both the male and women. So Salim and Sarah, who unfortunately died very young, who taught at the Madrasa Wataniya, uh, Luisa, who married um, Khalil Sarkis. So you have this kind of uh, Protestant web, this kind of uh, development of Protestant wasta, as I call it, Nahta wasta, um, through the Bustanis at the very highest. But let's just go back, going back to the pillar. The pillar states in English that this is the site of the first edifice built in the Turkish Empire for the girls' school. And it kind of goes on. But if you look on the other side, there's actually Arabic. And it doesn't quite match. I recently noticed that it actually says that this was um, the first Sunday school in the Ottoman Empire, and that this was the first school for girls in, um, in Syria, which again is a little bit inaccurate, but I think the Arabic is more accurate, that the building was the first Sunday school in the Ottoman Empire, but not necessarily the first school for girls. I mean, institutionally, yes, it was the first building for, as a school for girls, but not as a concept. But I want to interject here that buildings were very important yes, to the mission yes. project. Um, others have written about this, but... The whole idea of having a building, creating uh, a physical space, and even a kind of legacy through having property and buildings is uh, something that's a very important topic in missionary history. And so you do see this real emphasis in the sources of the first edifice and the whole physical presence of the actual school itself. So I just wanted to say that this was significant from the missionary's point of view. So welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson, and I'm here with Alan Fleischman and Christine Linder um, discussing the question of women and gender and the American Protestant missionary presence uh, in Syria, when what is now uh, Lebanon. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about, uh, we've talked about the difficulty of locating sources. We've talked about the gendered nature of the missionary experience, both for women who came with the Americans and then also um, the women who uh, sort of experienced the American mission on the ground, the Syrian women. Um, and you mentioned that uh, the Americans placed a lot of emphasis in their writing on um, buildings and edifices and also on being the first, right? And I also find this in my research that when you read um, missionary memoirs and documents, there is a sense that, you know, there was nothing here before, that we really are the first to bring, um, you know, girls' education and enlightenment and progress, right? These are the terms to the region. Um, and I think this is really fascinating because it brings us back to the question of sources and how to, how to read missionary documents which want to present themselves as being the first, as, um, you know, bringing mostly, if not only benefits to the local population um, 
And so I wanted to, to ask both of you to reflect a little bit on actually the, the research that you've been able to do here in Lebanon, um, where you've located sources and how you think about reading those sources. I mean, reading between the lines of missionary documents, finding perhaps the voices of women from the region. Um, and, you know, just to give our listeners a sense of both the, the difficulties and the pleasures of doing this, uh, this kind of difficult and fine-grained research in this part of the world. Well, one thing occurred to me while you were talking, actually, is the whole issue of whether or not the American missionaries were the first. And this raises a question of reliability of sources, which we all have to deal with, because every missionary was different. I mean, I think that, you know, it's axiomatic. But, for example, when I look at the sources produced by women missionaries, and particularly ones in the late 19th, early 20th century, one finds a lot of gaps. And those sources are sources that you can find actually in the US. They aren't Lebanon-based sources, which I'll talk about in a moment. But what's striking to me is this: all these claims, uh, which may seem grandiose about the mission, I believe reflect how isolated some of the missionary women were from perhaps their context and surroundings in not being aware of certain uh, debates or other groups or what was going on around them in the society they lived in. They lived, to a certain degree, fairly insular existences. Um, Christine can speak more to their links and ties to the Protestant community, with which I think they did have you know, much more contact and closeness. But when I read some of the sources written by missionary women, it's difficult to see how they really reflect on some pretty turbulent things that are going on around them even, except insofar as they affect them, such as World War I. Regarding some of the male missionaries, I would suspect that they, they do have much more of a kind of competitive kind of agenda in making these sort of claims. You know, and there's the infamous Jessup. We don't need to go into him too much here, but he certainly, um, some of these men whose Arabic was really strong did actually know of the reality it's interesting how little they talk about, for example, the Ottoman government's development of an educational system until they sort of rub up against regulations and problems which start occurring, particularly in the late 19th century. So reliability of sources is really an issue. Regarding women and gender, it's very, very difficult, as we mentioned, to find women's voices and sources of, by, and for women. And unfortunately, um, the major sources we have are things like missionary publications and missionary um, writings about them. There is some possibility doing oral history, but obviously that's extremely limited because it, you know, there's only a certain time period that one can really get those kinds of memories and get those kinds of reminiscence. Um, it's a real problem in doing women and gender history in the Middle East overall. Women, by and large, did not produce sources, and they were not considered um, a subject of... History or of interest. Yes, yeah. they weren't considered historical subjects. Yeah, yeah, and it brings me back to what Christine said earlier about, um, you know, the, the, the surprising thing is that many of these women were actually becoming literate, uh, and yet we still have, we still have so much difficulty um, locating sources. 
I think that there may well be sources out there that we don't have access to either, um, whether people saved papers and such. I mean, this is true of so many societies. And I've had the experience, for example, of going out to a village where somebody has actually dragged out some document from, in this case, it was 1855. Wow. And a really interesting document, which they allowed me to photograph, which made me think that if somebody could actually just go around from village to village, um, an extremely arduous project, but it might actually produce some rich material. Absolutely. And uh, we encourage you know our listeners who are interested in the history of women and gender and the history of Lebanon or elsewhere in the Middle East to perhaps undertake some of these trips um, and, and you know write to us about what you find. Um, so Christine, I know you've also done um, a lot of uh, primary source research here in Lebanon and elsewhere on the Protestant community and women and gender. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Um, and also the archive that we are currently broadcasting from at the uh, Near Eastern School of Theology, which contains, um, as I've found in my research, a, a sort of enormous number of sources on these questions. My first comment, though, is be weary of Henry Harris Jessup. Be very <laughs> cautious. <laughs> Both. <laughs> don't, uh, don't read him with a, you know, on the face level. You got right. to go under the surface there. Right. There's a lot going on there, so... I find that to be the most common mistake. Yes. Um, and yeah, the, you'll find one of the great things about Lebanon in general right now is that there's a big uh, upsurge of archiving and making material more accessible, which is a very big change from when I started doing research 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago when I struggled just to find anything. I know Ellen can speak to that as well. So then the past few years, and I know you've done some podcasts about this, which is really great and really helpful at sharing what is available. There has been this awareness of preserving uh, and making available archives. And one of the projects that I was lucky to work on was developing the archives, the special collections here at the Near East School of Theology um, through this Preserving Protestant Heritage in the Middle East project. And so what I what we basically did was just go through the special collections and just say, what is there? What do we have? Um, and create an inventory of it. Um, and so what's available here is about 2,000 archival pieces. Um, uh, I don't even know how many couple of thousand rare books, rare books. Um, manuscripts. The manuscripts already have um, a, a catalog and that's available. Most people know about that. Um, but the the material in the archives is very diverse. Um, it includes obviously the institution's history, which is in itself a unique history. It's not just of the theological school in Beirut started up in Abay, but also it was fed in by theological institutions in Anatolia, hmm. the Armenian community. Fascinating. Um, a, a really interesting history of how the Constantinople school was, you know, literally kicked out and went to Athens and then came down here of the different women's institutions. Um, and so you see a lot of just really progressive really progressive work going on, particularly with the Armenian women studying theology. Um, it, there's a really great yearbook that shows that, and it's a handwritten yearbook, and it has these really funny jokes, and it's really fun to look at. Um, so there's the institution's history, but it also has affiliated institutions, and I know most of the researchers come to look at the publications for the American Mission Press, and this includes, obviously, many of the great works on the Nahta, like um, Hannah Kospani Kurani, um, Farida Atiyah, as well as, obviously, Boutras Abustani and, and a lot of the kind of big names. So Nest is really the secret trove of women of the Nahta, um, both in the publications, but also of the Mission Press um, uh, journal, the Al-Nashra, which is a great, great source of information. 
Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that, um, you know, we hear really both sides of the story here, right? Which is one, that there is there is a lot of material, particularly from the missionaries. And, you know, having looked at some of the other missionaries here also, I mean, the Protestants have perhaps even more <laughs> archival material than you might find for other missionary communities. Um, but also then, you know, uh, be wary of Henry Harris Jessup, right? <laughs> that, like, you don't want to read that these sources as... Um, at face value, even though they present themselves that way as sort of objective histories of what is happening. Obviously, they have an agenda. Um, even the things they report and record are getting sent back to the American board. Um, you know, they're always in the business of presenting the mission project as successful and with a great future, and but also needing more money, right? I mean, so, um, you know, there's both great possibility and great peril, perhaps, in, in reading these sources. You have to be careful. And I think one of the things that Ellen highlights about the the village and the city is a really important topic that really needs yeah. to be explored more. There's a lot of great village schools, Ein Zelta and Hasbeya, and all of these great um, spaces which seem to get overlooked in the narrative, as well as other missionary institutions like the um, the Jesse Taylor School, the Scottish missions. Right. Damascus itself gets completely overlooked in this because they're of a different missionary branch. Right. And so all of these things, it, they don't you know they don't function in themselves, but they're overlooked and they're missing parts of the narratives that really will reshape the way we talk about this history. And there are sources that I know that are there, but we just haven't been able to um, access them yet, and hopefully we will in the future. So, yeah, I think there are two stories here. There's, there's one of um, abundance and wealth, and there's one of, um, I, I wouldn't say scarcity, but uh, difficulty in finding certain kinds of sources and certain kinds of voices as well. I mean, there is no, I have not come across anything that says what the missionaries meant to me. Right. Or what did my education mean to me, which is the essence of what I'm trying to get at to a certain degree. Right. So we've talked a little bit about the difficulty of locating sources that actually, you know, say in no uncertain terms what missionary education meant to people, um, particularly as you go further back in time, right? And this is compounded by, you know, the fact that many archives are, missing or have not yet um, surfaced, including for many of the, the girls' schools, these, you know, these institutions that were started by Protestant missionaries here in the 19th century, um, we simply don't have the records to recreate even who the students were or, you know, let alone what, what they took from it or what they thought of it um, or how they felt, right? But it also seems to me that, um, you know, starting from the project at Nest and then also moving into the future, you know, is it, that, is it possible that we will see, you know, more sources, different kinds of sources and directions um, emerging in the history of, of Protestant missionaries uh, in Lebanon? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's important to remember the context in which we do research and in which the records were preserved. Um, for Lebanon, we cannot forget that there was a major civil war where the, the institutions, many of the Protestant institutions, were significantly damaged or threatened during the war. And so at, in order to preserve the records, many people took them to their own homes. And it's only now that they are feel comfortable in releasing them to institutions and making them available. But I think this also opens up a question to our responsibility with the conflict going on in Syria, where we have a similar crisis going on. And we, yes, of course, we need to remember the humanitarian um, needs, but also the cultural needs, because as I've seen in my own work in the archives at Nest, the 
the legacy of whole generations or whole institutions can be lost completely. And you see this with the Armenian genocide as well. So preserving the heritage and being conscious of how school records, church records, institution records, having them preserved and working with smaller institutions to do that, whether it's digitization or physically um, preserving them and making them available. And cataloging. And cataloging them, yeah. Um, All of this is, is really significant in order to not prioritize a specific narrative, whether mm-hmm. it's a gendered narrative or mm-hmm. a nationalist narrative or whatever it might be in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. So I think that's um, that's, a, that's a really good note to, to end on, which is that, um, you know, not only may there be new resources uh, coming for historians of Lebanon or historians of the Protestant mission or of missionaries in the Ottoman Empire or of, as you mentioned, Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, broad numbers of documents, um, but also that, you know, as, as historians who are working in the region, we should also be aware of what future generations will be looking for and how we might help to, um, to preserve or help others to preserve uh, records and documents from, from places which are undergoing the kind of experience that Lebanon um, has obviously undergone. So I think that's a really wonderful point. Um, and I want to just thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. Here we are in Beirut um, on the 150th anniversary of AUB uh, or the Syrian Protestant College. But really what we've been talking about today is that the missionary encounter here went far beyond um, what was happening at AUB, that there were other, you know, there was a longer history here. Um, there was a much wider network of schools and churches and sites of encounter and interaction. And uh, that all of these were experienced in some ways differently by women and by men. Um, so I think that's really that's really fascinating and is really a kind of of broad interest to anybody whose research involves missionaries, right? That it's not simply um, the official narrative, which might be contained in the reports or, uh, you know, the memoirs of certain prominent um, missionary men, but that also there are lots of other voices sometimes can be, uh, or at least fragments or shadows of them can be uncovered in the archive um, or through oral history. So I just want to thank you both again uh, for coming on the podcast. And for our listeners who want to find out more, um, there have been many excellent works of scholarship uh, mentioned today, as well as written by our, our, two, um, our two guests. So we'll put up a short bibliography on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Um, we encourage you all to join us there. Uh, to see other episodes from um, our ongoing series on women and gender, uh, of which this episode will be a part, as well as other series that may be of interest on urban space, um, history of science, many other topics. Um, So please join us on the web. You can also join us on Facebook. um, And that's all for this episode. So until next time, take care. (laughs) 